Welcome to Artspace Perspectives, where we capture conversations with the artists and creative stakeholders who live, work, and contribute to Artspace communities, giving them a digital platform to share their passion and perspectives about the creative economy in the cities in which they live. Welcome to Artspace Perspectives, where we capture conversations with the artists and creative stakeholders who live, work, and contribute to Artspace communities, giving them a digital platform to share their passion and perspectives about the creative economy in the cities in which they live. Season one focuses on the city of Memphis, nationally known as the birthplace of Seoul, and our new community, the South Main Artspace Lofts. We're calling it the Art and Soul Edition. Today, our guest is Cherie Thomas, an award-winning fiction writer, poet, and editor. She's the author of Sleeping Under the Tree of Life, Shotgun Lullabies, and Dark Matter. Shree's been honored with fellowships from Breadloaf Environmental, the New York Foundation, Kaveh Kanem, and the Tennessee Arts Commission, just to name a few. For our writers out there, this will be an interview you won't want to miss. Stay tuned. As promised, we're talking to Shree Thomas, a fabulous um, science fiction writer. Some people might call you a speculative writer. Some people might call you an Afrofuturism writer. Um, tell us about your work. Hi, I'm a speculative fiction writer, science fiction writer, Afrofuturism, all that good stuff. Um, I write mostly stories about ordinary people, mm-hmm. and I usually try to place them in extraordinary circumstances. I think that's um, the thing that um, I enjoy most. Right. Yeah. And Cherie, you live in one of our buildings, yes? I do. I live in the best building. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I live in the East Building, the um, formerly the United Warehouse Building of South Main Art Space. South Main Art Space Lofts. And how do you like it so far? I love it. I really love it. It's a beautiful space. Great community. Okay. So, as I spend some time in Memphis, um, I've spoken to a lot of artists. And one of the questions I've always had is, like, why Memphis? Why why would you choose Memphis for your home, but also, like, your creative home as you're, like, growing? Because you're, like, internationally known as a writer. Mm, emerging. Are you emerging? <laughs> I still consider myself emerging, even okay. though I've been publishing for about 20 years mm-hmm. or more. But you've traveled outside of the country. I definitely have. To talk about and, your work. Yeah, and we'll be doing so tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, but um, I'm from Memphis. I was born and mostly raised here. Mm-hmm. So it's my home. It's also uh, my creative home. Even when I was away in New York for almost two decades, I still realized that I wrote mostly about Memphis. Um, it was very difficult for me to write about New York because I felt like I was a visitor there, even though I had been there a long time. Um, my roots are in the Mississippi Delta. Um, mm. Both sides of my family are from this area. The river calls to me, Mississippi River calls to me. Mm. had a different relationship with the Hudson River, but the Mississippi was my home. So, yeah, Memphis is a natural place for me as a writer and just as um, a person in the world. Right. So this season, when we're focusing on our, our conversations with folks from Memphis, with stakeholder, creative stakeholders from Memphis, um, we've thought about the concept of soul because this is the birthplace of soul music. How would you describe, how do you think soul speaks to your work? Or um, I don't know what a better way to say it is. How do you think soul, um, the concept of soul emerges through your work? For me, soul emerges in the voice of the people. Um, I spent a lot of my early uh, development as a writer um, trying to decide what kind of voice I would assume on the page. Mm 
Mm-hmm. And first I tried to mimic what I thought of as the traditional Western voice, you know. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly the MFA voice, but um, the work that we normally find in the New Yorker or some other publications, the Paris Review, what have you. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that there was a distance between that kind of writing and what I actually felt most passionate about. And I realized the thing that moved me was the sounds of um, the colloquial sounds of people, how they talked when they were mostly comfortable at home, um, uh, amongst their family and friends, um, all the different um, code switching that that's involved in that, mm-hmm. and um, some of the references and stuff, and the humor and the genius that's in that. And so I began to try to work really hard to capture that kind of dialogue in my stories. And then I found myself writing more and more about the people themselves, um, just ordinary people that I grew up with who raised me, who taught me, who corrected me, who um, inspired me. Um, I found that I didn't see a lot of them in in books and certainly not in a, a wide variety. You know, there's always like this kind of stereotypical way that they are portrayed. And so I wanted to capture that in the field that I really love the most, which is science fiction. So that's what I've been working on. So soul for me is the voice of us. You know, it's authentic. Mm-hmm. It is, um, it's hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's um, a voice that is not afraid of truth telling. Um, but it also is a voice that um, represents a memory. So, yeah. And then just connected to that, I always think of um, science fiction writers, like I think about the works of like Octavia Butler. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if there's a, like a time travel concept when you're sitting down to write, um, how that plays in, and if it's connected to like the concept of soul. Like, hmm, um, Octavia Butler is really important to me. She's actually part of the reason why I became a science fiction writer. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always been writing as a child, but it wasn't until I took a slavery and literature class um, with Professor Dickinson at Rhodes College um, that I discovered her work. I didn't realize that a black woman had been writing science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, when I read Kindred, it was a book that was difficult for me because I was like, this is the militant 90s. We were walking around with African medallions and stuff, you know, you know, public enemy was fighting the power, you know, and I just felt like the work reflected a character that seemed initially to me as passive, and I wanted her to be so much more active mm-hmm. and militant in the past. She's going back to the plantation of her ancestors, and I wanted her to do more. But um, after rereading and rereading the work, I realized the genius of Octavia Butler that she recognized that that was going to be a modern person's perspective, and she showed us the challenges of what it would really be like to have this kind of contemporary knowledge but be placed in an institution where to read can get you killed, right. you know, and what that would look like on a day-to-day practical level. And so she had to be even more resourceful and courageous. Right. So it just changed the way I thought about my ancestors. Instead of just always celebrating those who raised the spear, but recognizing the genius and the courage of those who were silently, quietly, secretly subversive and resisting in ways that allowed them to survive and allowed me to eventually be born. So Octavia's work um, kind of was that shining light that made me think, hmm, I could be doing more with my writing because at the time I was writing nonfiction Mm. and essays um, and poetry. And then eventually in um, 99, I got a chance to study with her in Seattle. She became my teacher. And so I'm sitting there with one of my idols who's reading my 
drafts <laughs> and giving me feedback on my writing and, and, and talking to me about her journey as a writer because she too had gone to this workshop I was in, Clarion West. That's amazing. And it was just, um, it was pretty much life-changing. I was editing Dark Math at the time. She had given me some of her work so I could include it. So it was just a lot coming full circle for me, um, you know, but... Um, I did not know that when I asked that question. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, I read Parable of the Sword when I was like 16. And then, oh. of course, I had to reread it. Like, you have to revisit Octavia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you get something different every time. Right. You know, especially a, a time like this, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what else inspires you? Do you have any other heroes or sheroes, or where do you find your inspiration? Besides uh, the Mississippi Delta. <laughs> oh, besides uh, my people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I find it in natural science. Um, mm-hmm. I do a lot of research. I love um, insects on the page. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I love, um, I just love the natural world, trees and things like that. And so you'll find that some of my stories involve um, people interacting with nature in ways that are revelatory. Um, in ways that challenge us to reflect on what it means to be human on the planet and to share this planet with other forces and to acknowledge that other life forms have, um, you know, have value beyond just consumption, Mm. you know, beyond being tools for our agendas. And so I try to mix those things. Um, Like I have a a story where um, I'd studied all these, uh, the ways that grasshoppers communicate because I wanted to write a story about what might happen if the descendants of um, Africans created their own colony in space, away from white supremacy, away from colonialism. That's fascinating. And so you're like, well, how does the grasshoppers feed in that? Well, it was sort of a Pied Piper tale where they thought that they had escaped all these things that had plagued us for centuries on Earth, mm-hmm. but really um, they re reinvented those those fears on the planet and they kind of appeared as a plague that eventually lured their children away with um, the very thing they feared the most to teach them a lesson mm. um, and so I had to study all the different ways that crickets and grasshoppers make sounds you know the rubbing of the legs and the, the, the you know the parts of their bodies and stuff so that I can get the language just right and um um, and then weave that into um, the story. And that was a lot of fun. So I'm kind of a nerd who likes to play um, with other tools. You know, <laughs> Science fiction is just another tool. Right, right. Yeah. I was like, but science fiction, you have to have it based on something. Like you have to get Usually. those details right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you can extrapolate it in a way that it um, feels real to the reader and they're not pulled out of the story. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So... One of the other questions that I've always had for artists in Memphis is, or just artists in general who are on our Perspectives podcast, is how they view the creative economy here. I think that, um, you know, people who work at ArtSpace, we travel to so many different cities. We meet so many dynamic people. So what do you think about the creative economy in Memphis and how do you fit into that world? (laughs) <laughs> what an interesting question. Um, I see evidence of the creative co- economy all around me. I'm not quite sure if I fit in it yet. Mm-hmm. I'm looking to see. I have um, peers who are creative writers as well, done amazing things. But when I look at us, most of us have done our work outside of the city. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting figuring out you know, where that parity is and where that equity is mm-hmm. in terms of um, being able to make a living a home in Memphis beyond just physically being here, but actually having, you know, the um, the institutional support, 
you know. So, for example, my one of my greatest mentors um, um, was not able to secure a teaching position here in his beloved hometown. He had to go out of the city, out mm-hmm. of the state, in order to teach because we don't always value um, our homegrown heroes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to go away sometimes to be acknowledged um, from what they've been doing all along. So I think that's something that we can work on. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing um, I'm not as, ex- you know, fond of is this whole idea of the grind and the hustle and the grit and the grind. I mean, Memphians <laughs> are really proud of using that alliteration, grit, grind, grizzlies, you know, right. hustle, hustle, hustle. <laughs> and I don't feel like we, I, I feel like that's just a, um, that's that spirit of, you know, we're going to put some optimism and some swag on something that's really um, a hard reality. It's a harsh reality. The reason why they're gritting and grinding is because they're being cut out of um, some of the opportunities, and so they have to be resourceful. So I like to revisit that that dynamic and put another spin on it, use some other language, so that it's not always a, kind of a, a grinding situation, but more of a blossoming experience, more of a um, a shared um, collaboration where people are creating all across the community and not just in little cliques and circles, and so that people have an opportunity to really show. Um, the kind of art that they can create and work with others. Um, you know, so that's it's just a different philosophy. We're going to unpack that a little bit more. This is Artspace Perspectives. I'm your host, Tio Aiken, with our guest, Sheree Thomas. Earlier, we were talking about the grit and grind of artists in Memphis. Um, what do you think is needed for artists to be able to rise above or expand beyond the grit and the grind of, you know, daily cultural production? I think one of the main things an artist needs is stability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can say I'm so grateful for art space because that is providing that for me. Um, having a space, a studio that is beautiful, that is safe, um, that is affordable, um, that is part of a larger artist community is just a godsend. Mm-hmm. It actually um, allows me to stay at home for change. I had spent the past three or four years traveling outside of Memphis so that I can be in an artist community and get work done. Um, this will probably be the first year that I don't feel that I must apply for a residency abroad. I just came back from Bread Loaf Environmental, oh, wow. studying with the amazing Luis Alberto Urea in a, a, a classroom of um, awesome writers from around the, the country. And that was a, a just amazing experience. But um, the years previous to that, you know, I'd been to many other places. And it's just because I needed a, a room, not necessarily with a view, but a, a room where I can sit down and focus and not necessarily have to um, concentrate on the survival um, oh. things. I can just focus focus on my work. And knowing that my home now is that for me, it is a studio, a living space and a workspace, I mean, that's just, that's half the battle right there. So I think that we, in terms for artists in Memphis, having art space lofts is that first thing to get us out of the grit and grind. Um, if I had uh, my magic wand. If you, had, <laughs> if you had two more wishes. If I had two more wishes. <laughs> um, it would be um, to have um, our arts leadership recognize the value of the word and the value of writing. I feel mm-hmm. like um, it's, it's sometimes easier to conceive of visual art because it's something that a person can just stand and observe and anyone can you know experience it. Whereas writing and reading is uh, is a partnership. It's a collab. You have to be 
be engaged with it on the page, and it's like a translation, mm-hmm. and it takes a little bit more out of you. It's not easily consumed, mm-hmm. you know, and people aren't don't always feel confident about their reading ability or what have you, whereas they can tell what's beautiful to them or what's intriguing to them just by looking. So it's there's um, a a history of support for visual arts. And of course, we're in the land of music, Memphis, crossroads of rock, gospel, soul, and the blues. Mm-hmm. Um, all the first, everything that makes American culture what it is, came out of Memphis, Tennessee, quiet as it's kept. <laughs> um, and so it's the city spends a lot of energy um, advertising and, and commercializing the music and what I'd say black genius. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the product of Memphis Black Genius, but the people who create that genius aren't always benefiting from it. Um, sometimes they're not even the face of it, mm-hmm. you know. So I feel like if we had an art leadership that also cr- pr- provided just as many opportunities for writers, people who work on the page, literature, spoken word artists, are being funded, grants, and that kind of thing, um, that would be a, another step in the right direction to getting us out of the grit and grind and keeping some of that talent in Memphis instead of us having to get on planes and travel and go share our work with other people because there doesn't quite seem to be a desire and a hunger for it here at home where it's being created, you know. So that would be my second wish. What about your third? My third wish (laughs) would be for there to be um, more institution building. I'm looking at... um, places like Atlanta and other places where Memphis musicians, rappers, and what have you have had to leave Memphis and go to other places to create sound and record. And then because we don't have those institutions here, um, um, they somehow that Memphis identity gets erased Mm -hmm. and other artists from other places, I'm not going to name names this time, they take it and and they go somewhere else and they think that they created it. But anyone from Memphis knows where it came from. We can probably sometimes tell you the street and the (laughs) artists where it came from, you know. But um, it's because we don't have it here. So for me, and I'm just going to move from music because I'm not a musician, though Mm -hmm. I do engage with it in my writing. Um, if there were more independent presses here and publishing where we can publish things that are uniquely Memphis. Because Memphians are, by right, all great storytellers. I mean, you can go stand at a gas station and be waiting in line to pay for your purchases, and you can hear the most amazing, humorous story from someone behind you. We're just natural storytellers, I think, in Memphis. Um, I don't know if we always recognize that talent, you know. Um, But I would love to have... um, to have a press here where I can publish some of the great writers and emerging voices that I've been encountering just by, you know, being home again. Yeah. So that would be great. If you have publishing companies and you have publishing imprints, then you have uh, you have a, a, a body of work that can live and right. move. Yeah. So as you're going through your three wishes, yes. you mentioned <laughs> that you engage with music and it does speak to your work somehow. How mm-hmm. do you how do you interact with music and or soul music in, in your work? How does it well, feed my, it? Well, my new project I'm working on um, is called Nine Bar Blues, and I'm happy to say I just signed a contract. Yeah. Uh, yes! Congratulations. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. Um, with um, a wonderful uh, publisher, Third Man Books All in right. Nashville. Yeah. Um, I have the opportunity to work with a wonderful Chet, um, who is himself a writer and poet and a musician. Um, I just discovered the Southern Festival of Books. And um, I'm excited. The company is owned by Jack White, of course, the musician uh, formerly of the White Stripes. And wow. he also has Third Man Records. And I'm looking forward to being a part of the family. 
Um, I've always had great editors. Um, I had a great editor at um, Aqueduct Press in Seattle, um, Timmy Duchamp, and I just, um, I'm excited. But music is the theme, sort loosely, of the stories in this collection, mm-hmm. and um, but in different kind of ways. So I'm going to move through all the genres that I personally love that have impacted my life. Like what? Um, there are some stories that, of course, um, reflect the spirit of the blues, uh, some that are have the genius of, uh, uh, you know, uh, house music and um, uh, old school hip hop, the origins. Um, there is music that is the music of nature. You know, um, it's just different. Each story is a different take on on um, stories. I'm working on a, a Michael Jackson story. I hope that um, comes through because you know, um, the Jackson Five performed in South Memphis on the roof of a mall. And, you know, most people don't know that. I don't know that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you got to read Nine Bar, Blue, Nine Bar Blues. To okay. Get that. <laughs> it's going to come out in 2020, so be patient. But, That's a um, good plug for yeah, futurism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we'll be doing readings at, um, at Art Space as well. So, Five. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll fly yeah. back for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing. It's going to be off the chain. So, yeah. That's yeah, amazing. Yeah. And just maybe for the people uh, listening at home, can you give your definition of what Afrofuturism is or speculative fiction is? Hmm. Well, speculative fiction is just an umbrella term for work that is non-memetic, meaning it's work that's not necessarily rooted in realism. And it could be science fiction, which is any story in which the science is so important and critical to the storytelling Mm -hmm. that if you took the science out, you wouldn't even have a story. Um, Fantasy is where the story has its own universe or its own system of magic and rules that defy our normal um, scientific um, principles. Horror, of course, is stories that um, elicit a sense of dread. Um, it can be psychological horror, um, bo- you know, body horror. They're mm-hmm. all different kinds of horror. And then there's the slipstream stuff or interstitial writing that work that doesn't necessarily fit comfortably in a particular genre. It kind of goes across different fields and um, magical realism. So it's, you know, all of that good stuff under one umbrella. For me, Afrofuturism is something that's evolving um, but it's mostly um, work that reflects black culture, exploring technology, exploring social practices that have changed over time and political circumstances that have changed over time. Mm. And it's been used a lot to talk about um, fashion and music and things like that. Um, um, at first, it was very Eurocentric in nature. That's the 1.0 version. 2.0 was actually black people writing science fiction with a black audience in mind. Mm-hmm. And 3.0 is going back. You know, it's not going back, but it's coming from the continent of Africa, where they are themselves creating work that reflects what's happening on the continent right now. Mm. Yeah. And where can people find your work if they're interested in learning more about you? You can find my work wherever books are sold. I'm um, in bookstores. You can find it online. And also, of course, uh, Third Man Books. Um, my collection, latest collection, is Sleeping Under the Tree of Life, mm-hmm. um, which is short stories and poetry. I'm a two-headed writer. I write in two genres mostly um, and use the bo- both of the genres to tell one story. Um, and this other collection is Shotgun Lullabies because I was born and raised in North Memphis, Klondike. Mm. And, of course, there are a lot of shotgun houses over there, or there were. And um, so it was a big part of my youth. And so I ended up writing um, works that reflected the communities there. Sheree, thank you so much for taking thank time you. to talk to us today <laughs> or talk to me today. Thank you, Tio. It was just wonderful. <laughs> this is Art Space Perspectives. You're listening to Memphis Art and Soul. I'm your host, Tio Aiken. 
with our fabulous guest, Sheree <laughs> Thomas. Thanks for listening. Artspace Perspectives, produced by Artspace and distributed by Kitsukian.